Hey, this is Stephen Cognetti, uh, writer-director of the Hell House LLC franchise, and you are listening to the Don't Go Out There podcast. In a world where zombies, ghosts, serial killers, and vampires all exist, it's Nico, Brian, Mike, and Dustin, and they are all that stand between you and the films that could end the world. Welcome to... The Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Podcast. Just want to thank all our fans and listeners. We really appreciate it. Super excited for this upcoming interview. We are joined today by another big name of the business, known mostly for writing and directing the very popular Hell House LLC franchise. We are very excited to have on Mr. Stephen Cognetti. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today, sir? Excellent. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's our pleasure. Absolutely. Stephen, again, thank you so much for coming on. Listen, we usually like to kick off all of our interviews by just asking, you know, what is it that got you into this business? Was directing and writing, you know, always your niche or? Yeah, that um, I have, uh, I think I, ever since I was a little kid, wanted to make movies. So um always wanted to be a director. So when I played toys as a little kid, I was playing with them, envisioning them as props in my movie. And um, always seeing it from that aspect. So like GI Joe's was a big fan. I love playing with GI Joe's and, but I would, um, pretend I was making a movie with my GI Joe's more so than, um, just, you know, playing with them. So, uh, so it's, I'm, I, for me, I'm lucky enough to, you know, it's not everyone gets to do what they've always wanted to do since they're a little kid. So for me, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've been able to. So it just went to film school, um, Temple University in Philadelphia, and uh, that was a, a real awakening moment of like, it is a very tough industry. You just can't just show up and be like, hey, I'm going to be a filmmaker. Where's the right. camera? It's very tough to get into, um, you know, make a make something, get it, get noticed. So it's a, it's a very tough process. Right. Uh, so just kind of talk to me a little bit about the found footage genre, you know, as a whole, if, you know, if I'm not mistaken, you've made comments about shooting a found footage movie being a blessing and a curse and, yeah. you know, from, from everything from the budget, camera angles, everything in between. Can you talk a little bit about that? So, yeah, because, um, we're very indie, uh, the Hell House movies, you know, don't have a big budget. So when I say blessing and a curse, it, it, it works to our advantage that we are able to shoot on a budget, uh, a found footage movie. Um, but uh, the uh, the curse part is that uh, I don't really then get to have the coverage I want that I would want from a traditional narrative film where I get to approach a scare and say, hey, I want to I want to shoot this from, you know, angle one through six, uh, right. you know, cameras, A, B, C and D and on. Um, so I have to I'm locked into one position for each scare. Uh, and sometimes that works out great, you know, because then you get to have fun being creative by just how is this going to be shot in one from one angle from a, uh, a first person perspective. And so that works out sometimes. And I think that it's good because it makes it feel real. I think that uh, that's also the authenticity of found footage, I think adds a lot to any scare because it's, it does look like, Oh, that could be anybody's home movie. And, and so right. it feels more real. Um, and so I love it for that. I love it for being able to cover, you know, 10 to 12 pages a day because we don't have coverage. Um, so our, our shoot times are anywhere from, uh, you know, uh, probably like 12 days. I think that that's what the original hell house was about 12 days, oh, wow. um, shooting. So, you know, we're able to get all 93, 94 pages of script in, in those, uh, 12 days. I think we spent like 10 days at the Abaddon hotel, 
um, and then two days shooting elsewhere of like, uh, you know, pick up interviews um, right. around town to fill in the documentary side of the movie. So it's for both. But there's so many times where I'm, I'm approaching a scare and I'd be like, oh, I would love the reverse angle of this, but I can't do it because I'm locked into this one camera position. So Right. I get that. I get that. Uh, speaking, kind of staying on the found footage genre, the the Blair Witch Project obviously seems to be kind of the grandfather of found footage, really. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, what is it that made you decide to go that found footage route for the Hell House series? Because uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was originally planned for the traditional route, right? It, it was, and, and I quickly okay. realized that I don't have the money to raise for that. But, um, but I think I, I had an epiphany at one point that I, I think I just – it just it organically grew that way anyways, to go into this uh, fake documentary style. Um, and I, I kind of like that angle anyways. It, so it, it was a part budgetary thing, but it was mostly <clears throat> I like that style of filmmaking for this story anyways, because um, fake documentary is just so much fun. It's uh, and I, I, um, I watched uh, Lake Mungo a few years before I jumped into Hell House. And I just thought like they pulled off a documentary horror style so well it made right. it so believable and it was scary more scary because of that um so um and i also always loved like dateline um discover um like 48 hour mysteries you know murder mystery shows oh, so yeah. i kind of just wanted to go that route and then but bring it in more paranormal and i thought that was like a good angle for this film it just had it just made it more interesting than trying to make a traditional route i just think didn't think that fit for this particular film so you, you talked about some of the, uh, I guess, disadvantages to the found footage as far as like being uh, pigeonholed into a certain camera angle for a scare or something. What would you yeah. say is the toughest scene for you to shoot? And this could be not just Hell House LLC, but like, what would you say is the most difficult scene in any of your films that you can remember? Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll go with what has been released because I do have another film that's traditional narrative, not found footage, that's uh, going to be released uh, hopefully sometime in twenty four. But um, I was sticking to the found footage films that uh, people know of already. Um, uh, a few come to mind, but I think the the, the opening of the uh, original film with the chaos and the tour goers, I think that just was challenging because there's just so many moving pieces on that. Uh, so many uh, extras. We had to coordinate everything with the fire trucks and the ambulances, everything rolling up at the same time. Right. That was just a, you know, we had this film contained people inside a house that was easy, easier because, you know, we have our our set actors and we have all the, the, the haunt gags. But when you bring bring in a scene that just has so many pieces to it, um, things just get a little bit more complicated. But we had so many good people working on the film, organizing everybody. Um, the, uh, the fire department was so... Uh, they were just like, so like hey, willing to just hang out and say, sure, we'll do another take. And, you know, to get them to do multiple takes, you know, pull the truck all the way down the road and, and to come down on our signal, we had air horns as signals. And when I was running out of the, out of the hotel with the camera, that the air horn would go off and that's when they knew to pull it. So there's that perfect meetup uh. spot when I got to the gates. Um, so for all that, I think for just for the logistics, that was the hardest scene. Um, right. But one other scene comes to mind and that was in Hell House 3 is when um, Russell introduces uh, Jessica to, um, uh, or no, I'm sorry, Vanessa to the um, to all the crew that's in uh, Insomnia, and there's this. And I like the scene because I think it was it was it was funny, and all, I love all those actors. They were so they're so funny and so and so good at what they did. But um, there were so many different angles to cover that from because they all had their own cameras, 
Um, and so we're trying to get this whole interaction to happen with the, all these groups of people and they're all talking together and there's different cameras uh, zooming around. Um, that was just challenging and trying to coordinate that and, uh, and choreograph that. And, uh, but it was a lot of fun in post-production to put that together. Uh, because, and, and I just, I, I love those actors in Hell House 3 so much because they were all just like comedic in their own way. Um, so I just had a lot of fun with that scene and cutting it together. But, uh, but just like when we were blocking it and rehearsing it, it was just like, you know, there's 15 of us in this small dining room of the Avenon Hotel and, and, and just everyone had lines and it was bouncing all around and to try to figure out which camera should be go, going where. And when that was uh, a little challenging, but it came out well, I think. Yeah, Absolutely. For sure. Steven, I'm looking forward to hearing this story. That clown has become the face of the Hell House franchise. And I've heard in other interviews you've done about the cluster, or dare I say, circus. Hey, <laughs> a situation that led to actually getting that mask. Would you mind sharing with our audience and my fellow co host how you actually got that clown mask and how it came to fruition? Yeah. Um, so I knew going into it that I wanted the clown, um, the, the main Hell House clown in the original film, that clown mask, uh, just to be very uh, minimalist. Um, not much, I think clowns aren't scary when you start getting into, you know, the bushy hair, the nose. Um, then it's just, it's just too much. And everything related to Hell House is, uh, is subtlety. Subtlety is everything. And um, less is more, I believe. And so I wanted that, that those principles apply to the mask as well. So just like kind of like a pale face with not much going on. We, um, so I had a, an artist make some basic um, uh, concept art of what I was looking for. We used that. I sent that to a mask maker. The mask maker um, said, don't worry, I'll get it to you by the time you're shooting. Um, never did. And uh, that never happened. And it was like a day away from shooting. I'm like, hey, where's this mask? And he gave me the, like pretty much the dog gave my homework. He was like, um, my studio had a flood. And so I'm like, okay, we're a day away from shooting. We don't even have a mask yet. But um, uh, so I told Angie, I'm like, I need something. Angie, who runs the haunt at the Waldorf, and she uh, works as our production designer on uh, on the original. And uh, so she actually found something close enough to what I was looking for. It was blank enough, a blank enough of canvas of a mask that we could just, then our makeup artist can add the blood and do other things to it to, to match my concept art. So, um, I think that worked out better because that mask, it was an old mask that she pulled out that she hadn't used. It, it already had some weathering to it, some age to it. So I think that might have worked out better. I, actually, if this guy had shipped me the mask, it might have, the silicone might have been too fresh and new that I, and I think it might have lost a little bit than what we got when we just brushed off an old um, dirty mask that she, that she had as a backup. So uh, our backup plan worked. And, uh, and that's how we got to, it was still kind of basically the principle of the concept of what we, I originally came up to up with, but, um, just not exactly, you know, wasn't made specific for the film. We didn't have anything custom made for the film until, uh, Carmichael Manor. And that's when, um, we worked with these uh, amazing mask makers, these uh, professionals out of Ohio, um, and uh, they they took uh, some basic concepts I just made up in Photoshop and it's very uh, rudimentary stuff. And they blew me away with what they sent back to me for these right. two new clowns. And I was like, those are creepy. I love it. Thank you so much. <laughs> and they sent me um, and they remade the original mask, too. Um, oh, wow. So they, and I and for story wise, I needed the mask aged differently. So I needed a, a mask that was um, looked new. Um, looked from the eighties and also um, weathered to present time too. So they sent me all three masks, three different ages. 
um, wow. you know, uh, back in the sixties, eighties, and then present, like aged accordingly as it went on. So it was, it was awesome. They were great to work with. Awesome. Perfect. So you mentioned Carmichael Manor. Let's talk a little bit about origins. So it's the fourth film in the franchise, which is Hell House LLC origins, Carmichael Manor. Can you talk about your thought process and moving away from the hotel, but still tying it in? Was that always your intention after you burn it down in the third one? Spoiler alert. Uh, did you consider an entirely new standalone? Yeah. Um, well, when I burned it down, uh, when we wrapped on that film in 2019, I didn't know if I was going to make another Hell House film. Um, so, and then, and then COVID happened. And then 21, when we got back up, I was able to get uh, my other film, 8254, it's Road Off the Ground. And, and so we shot that, that was just a huge project for me because it was a, a bigger budget than anything, um, any remotely close to hell house. And, um, and, uh, so we finished that in 21 and that film went into a really long post-production. As I said, it's not even, um, out yet. It's still, we just wrapped post-production just at the end of 23. And, um, but in that time in between 21 and 23, I was, um, I was getting antsy and, and I wanted to work on something. And I said, like, right. uh, if I'm going to do something in the world of hell house, you know, I don't want to do anything in the hotel again. Cause I burned it down for a reason. I was done with the story there as it related to the, to the hotel itself. And I just think from writing, um, purposes, it had gone stale for me. I did. I, I was finding it hard to come up with uh, unique scares in that environment because there was, we'd done three movies in there already. And I said, if I do anything in Hell House, I just wanted to be its own standalone. And I think that was going to help in terms of coming up with like fun scares and, um, and new storylines. Um, and so that's when I, I, it just came to me one time uh, that I wanted to do something in the, in the childhood uh, home of uh, Patrick Carmichael and then explore his story more. And then I came up with uh, the subtitle Carmichael Manor. And then I was like, well, now I got to find a manor um, kind of uh, painted myself into a corner there. But luckily we found a, a manor that I think uh, fit the story perfectly. And it worked out uh, very well. And it's near to where uh, I live, which is in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So um, oh, okay. it was a, a lot of fun to be able to film locally. Uh, not the, uh, the Avedon hotel filming location is too far away from Scranton as it is it's just a, uh, an hour south of Scranton, but uh, this was in like pretty much my backyard, so it was, I just, it was fun. I just finished an office watch through, so I feel like I live in the same yeah. in your backyard right there. Yeah, so <laughs> we, were, we, we were stocked on paper, like the best paper you can <laughs> get at all time. When you're filming in Scranton, your paper needs are going to be met. So, and it's <laughs> the Electric City, so you know you got that. It's too. the Electric City. There you go. Yeah, you know that too. That's great. You know our little slogan. <laughs> That's awesome. Before before I transition. I want to ask you one more question about the first one, Stephen. Uh, what I think makes that movie good is the camaraderie of the cast you have. Yeah. I think they all do so well. They seem so natural. They seem like genuine friends. Can you talk about the camaraderie of the cast and how it was working with them on set? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I think you're right. I think a lot of why people like the original so much is because of that cast. And, um, and they were amazing. Uh, but they were complete strangers and they all auditioned. And once we picked each of them for the roles, we finally brought them together for a table read. Um, and everyone except for Mac, who I think was in LA at the time. Um, so he wasn't able to make the table read in New York, but um, everyone else was. But when we all got together, the first time they were all together, just hanging out was when we drove out to the Abaddon. So what I did is I put them in the same car together and I told Tony, uh, Jared Hacker, to make sure everyone's like 
playing like if you if nobody's talking, make sure they're playing like road games to pass the time. You know, like some dumb you know game that you play in the car as a kid. Like just do something to get everyone talking and interacting. Um, but I don't think, I don't think they needed anything like that because once they got in together, they were just like immediately just like talking and hang and joking. And they just had a fun ride out to the Abaddon from the get go. They were just, um, a, like a, a, a tight knit group. And then once we started filming, they were hanging out all the time. So once the camera was down, that group would go to the hotel, put their bags down then head right to the bar and they would hang out at the bar <laughs> that was down the road from the hotel all night long, sometimes too late, um, and uh, they sometimes they got a little too drunk. But uh, they always they always got to work the next day, no problem. But um, they were hanging out in each other's rooms, and uh, and just like it, just we're just like just, you would never know that, but they just seemed like like they had been best friends ever since before the movie, um, and then ever since they still they're still close, and they still talk, they still hang out. Um, I know that uh, Gore and Danny um, had, I think they're working on their own film right now. I know uh, a year ago they had, they had mentioned a screenplay that had been um, working on together. Um, okay. And yeah, so they're, they, and they still stay in contact. They're still all very close. So they had a very uh, fun experience out there. And I think we'll just keep them bonded together for a long time. That's so cool to hear. I mean, you could just see the, the chemistry and the camaraderie amongst them. I, I really enjoyed the first one. We're kind of moving away from Hell House a little bit. I've heard in previous interviews you've done how big of a fan you are of The Exorcist. Yes. And I've also seen on your Twitter X, whatever you call it now, that once David Gordon Green left the sequel, that would be your dream job. What is it about The Exorcist you love so much? And what are some of the ideas that you would do if you were given that sequel job? Don't spoil it all because who knows? You might get the job. Oh, uh, I haven't <laughs> even thought about that. But no, I. I think the exorcist, um, what they did, um, on the original, it still holds up to this day. I just, to my, to, to, for me, it's the greatest horror film ever made. And, and it was just shot so beautifully. The score was so, um, simple, but perfect. And, you know, the acting, you could say everything about it. It was just, it's just like, it's filmmaking. It's just like the best of filmmaking and it's horror filmmaking. And it's, you know, it's filmmaking that, uh, um, you know, they paid attention to every frame and, and that's, and that's what uh, good filmmaking is, but it was in horror. So, uh, I, I just, uh, I have such a, that, that film to me is like, I think what got me into horror is the thing that scared me the most when I was a little kid. And, um, so I just, uh, whenever I make a new film, I always just want to say, let's like, let's try to make this as scary as the exorcist. And the whole point of me telling people that is, is knowing that we're going to fall very short. No one can ever make something as scary as the exorcist, but I, that's our goal. If that's the, that we set such a high goal, even when we fall so far short of it, I think we'll still make a, a, a good horror film. Um, so you just want to set a high bar and the exorcist for me is the bar is the standard, the gold standard for horror. Um, now what I would do um, with that, I actually have thought about that. Being, uh, I just, I was just having fun you know, you never want to see anybody leave a project. Um, but uh I, I just think that would just, for me, just be such a fun project to dive into if I did something uh, something else, though. But uh, I've just been so wrapped up in so many other scripts and uh, trying to get other things off the ground that I <laughs> I never put in the time of what what my Exorcist movie would be. But uh, I would love the opportunity. We'll email some people. Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so speaking of, uh, you said you're working on other scripts. This is yeah. a personal question for me. So I'm a passion, I'm passionate about writing scripts, wanting to write them. I've got two that I'm working on, another idea for a third. 
Yeah. So I want to take this chance to really ask you, what advice would you give an aspiring screenwriter or someone wanting to get into directing? Um, so, so direct, I mean, both are hard to get into, but, um, I mean, actually, no, directing is harder to get into. Writing is not hard to get into. Just download the software, start writing. And you know, that's all you got to do. Um, so, uh, it, that's writing's a lot easier to get into. And as a filmmaker, I, for myself, I knew that, you know, nobody knew who, who, who I was. So I knew if I wanted to make a, a film, I was going to have to write it myself. Uh, and, ma- and just get it made somehow. So I just and, and so that's why I went low budget because I knew I was going to have to make it on my own. Um, but uh, in terms of writing, I have a process that's probably a little different though. But I don't I don't do tedious outlines of script because I kind of feel like that's a creative juice killer. Um, just sitting there writing outlines, it kind of feels like homework. Um, I like writing. Uh, what I do is I just start off with like very loose general ideas of what I'm about to write. And that's like a few scares. Uh, the, the main characters, obviously in the general story, I, I want to get out there. I want, I want to have like a blueprint before I start writing, but I don't want, I'm not right. going to map out every scene in there. I think that's just like so tedious. And so just going to, your creativity comes when you're in, in the moment of writing and you're writing the scenes and you're writing the story and things, and you don't really know every, how everything is going to come out. Um, so I write a few scares that I know I want to get to like this scare, scare A, B, and C. I know I want to hit these scares in the screenplay. I know these are my main characters. I know this is where the story's going. I know this is generally the ending I want. And then I want to just dive right into the script. And it's kind of like a, a way that novel novelists do about it. So Stephen King writes that way. He says, when he jumps into a, a novel, he doesn't know which character is going to live or die until he gets to the end. Um, and sometimes I like that when I, uh, when I wrote the original hell house, I didn't know, um, I thought I had an idea of how everyone was going to live and who was going to die. And I thought actually the, originally I thought it was only going to be Alex that died and everyone else survived. And, but it just didn't go that way. When I was in the story, it just felt that was the way to go is that everyone dies. And then we're going to tell the story of how they died, um, going backwards. So, um, I just kind of feel like it's, that's just the best way is just to start writing. And you know, what I, I told this to a few audiences, um, I've spoken to about screenwriting is that write that first draft, no matter how shitty that draft is, because the draft, your first draft of any script is going to be awful. And that's just how writing is. It's your first draft sucks, but you have a draft and you have something to work on. You have a skeleton. And then once you take that skeleton of, a, of your first draft and you start fleshing it out more, you start changing scenes and making them better, changing characters. But once you know, once you have that general outline, it's so much easier than to flesh things out and give things depth. And once you know you have an ending, then you know, oh, the, how can I tease that ending in the beginning? How can I set things up only to pay them off later on? And so once you see things from a bird's eye view, because you have that that um, structure of a script, it's so much easier to add the layers. And the layers are the best part. The things that you don't think about when you on your first draft, but you thought about it on your third draft, on your fourth draft, little things that you can pepper in. And now that, that's going to come through the rewriting process. So finish that first draft knowing that the first draft is going to suck, but because it sucks, you're going to make it better on the next drafts. It's actually great advice because I'll admit that first one that I started on, I went in just like, okay, I'm going to write every line of dialogue on this time. And man, you talk about hitting writer's block. It's just like, okay, where do I go from here? So I I really painted myself into a corner a lot. But uh, yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, it's good to know, like when I say about outlines, like some people like outline so much, but it's good to have a a good idea where you want to be first, second, third act. Mm-hmm. without writing pages and pages of outlines. So it's yeah. good to like what I like I write a few pages of just like I just where I I generally want the story to go 
I don't want to get too detailed in an outline because I just feel that's just that's not where the creative fun comes out of writing. It's writing an outline. I think that the, crea- the creativity comes when you're in the in the middle of a scene with characters interacting or writing a scare or writing action, and then you're you're figuring it out as you're writing, and and then the draft process is where you're going to fine tune all that and make it better. Um, and, uh, but I tell you the first draft of Hell House sucked. It was awful. And I knew that. And, um, and it's, it's, it's just like, there's something here. It's missing something. It's missing an angle. And I knew that because I wrote it and I wouldn't have known that if, unless I just sat down, and just pushed that first terrible draft out. Um, mm-hmm. and you have to do that. You have to get through, you have to get through that. If you can't stop because you're not like you're 20 pages in, you're like, this sucks. Can't stop. And just say, and never go back to it. You have to pe- push through get to 80, 90 pages um, yeah. and you're going to have garbage, print out that garbage, go through it, go through that garbage with a red pen and just, and just, and, and things will start coming, clicking as you're going through and be like, Oh yeah, that's garbage, but I'll change this to this, move this scene here, add something here and it will come to you, but it's going to take time. The writing process yeah. takes a long time. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate that. So your IMDB talks about you already being in post-production on a project called 825 Forest Road. I don't know if that's the one you were alluding mm-hmm. to earlier, but it's supposed to uh, yeah, hopefully yeah, drop. Yeah, what I was mentioning earlier. Yeah. Okay. What yeah. can you tell us about it? Um, so it's it's finished finally, and um, it, we finished it right right before uh, the holiday break in uh, twenty three and um, and uh, into twenty four. So, um, what I can say about I, I love this story. Um, for me, it, that that's another thing where that took a lot of drafts to get it to where I wanted it to be, but. Um, at its uh, bones, it's just a haunted house tale, and it, I, I think what's different about it is this: the way the story is told. It's, I think it's told in a unique way because we have three main characters that are living in this house, and they all experience this haunting differently. And we follow every act is um, from a different character's perspective, and we see every when we move into a, a new character's perspective in a new act, we see how all the perspectives interact with each other. Um, so something you see in one character's perspective in act two, you won't make any sense to you. But then when you see it from another character's that same scene in another character's perspective in act three, it makes complete sense. And it has that payoff in that way. Um, so we see these storylines intertwine and through this a bigger tale of, um, you know, this, uh, this haunted house tale. So it's, I'm very excited for it for that reason that I think it's just a little unique way to tell what is, you know, a haunted house tale, a, a tale that we've seen a million times throughout history, but it's just told differently, I feel. So I'm really excited about it. Awesome. Stephen, before we end this, I just wanted to give you big props. You know, before we do interviews, uh, I always like to try and go listen to other ones. And I searched your name and, my man, you've done a lot of interviews. I think uh, any anybody who asks you, you'll do it. And I, I think that's awesome, personally. Uh, it's it's. I think it's really cool that you you give your time to – you know, content creators, other podcasts. So uh, I just wanted to give you your flowers for that, making oh, time for, for the people. I think that's awesome. Uh, is there anything else you're working on? Any other irons in the fire you can tell us about? You want to shout out your social medias where the fans can follow you? Um, yeah, fans. I mean, I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Um, that's just my name. Uh, it's easy to find. And um, um, But, uh, yeah, no, I'm in the middle of a few different projects. I don't know which one's going to be next, one of them being um, a new Hell House film, too. Um, And I've written my first draft of the fifth chapter of Hell House uh, not too long ago. And um, 
Uh, I like where it's going. And, and as I said, it, it, need, it needs a couple of rewrites. They all do. <laughs> and, um, and you know, talking about the rewrite process, just if I could circle back to Carmichael Manor, um, it's just uh, when I knew I wanted it in the childhood home of uh, Patrick Carmichael, I didn't really know the motivation for the, our main characters being in that home. So the first draft of that script was terrible idea. I had, I had uh, our main characters, Margot and Rebecca opening up a bed and breakfast in this old manor. Um, and, and that's why their motivation for being there in the manor was that they had, they had bought it out of steel. And, and I was like, yeah, I don't really like that angle. Why they're in the manor. I need to, I want something else. And it just rewriting, rewriting came to this angle. I got Margot's history. I got deeper into Margot's history and her ties to everything through the rewriting process and uh, adding the layers there. Um, and that was a, that would, and that was a fun writing process, the Carmichael Manor. And I'm having a lot of fun doing the same thing in the, in the fifth uh, film right now too. Um, I don't know if that's what I'm going to be making next though. Um, Cause I got some other uh, projects that I'm trying to get off the ground as well, but uh, that's pretty much what I'm working on now. And that's, that's about it. Just right now the writing process, it's just writing different projects, seeing which one is going to get made, what we're going to be doing next. And, uh, I don't know, but um, the, the writing part is always the fun part. It's the dullest part because I'm just sitting in my office all day writing and thinking and then writing and then thinking. And that's just uh, – and that's why I like doing podcasts because I'm like, nah, I need to talk to someone. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, before we let you go, when you get writer's block, what do you like to do to get out of writer's block? Um, like you got any it, uh, I, habits I, or – Yeah. No, I what I always actually find um, is really good for that um, is – what, what I would say taking a walk or um, I, I like to run. So a, a jog uh, really does that for me. When I was um, living in New York city, when I was on the original hell house, uh, the long subway rides I would have in between work um, back and forth, like just being on that subway. I was just, I was just in this confined space, just lost in my thoughts and things would click on that ride. And even in the edit process, when I was having trouble editing the original hell house, I was like, these scenes aren't connecting. How do I make this work? And on that edit, on that subway drive, I'd be like, it would come to me, like I could click. And so, and, and I think it's the same thing, just taking the long walk, being in your own thoughts while in motion, it's some, that always helps. And so right now, like when I, when I'm stuck on something, I'm not just going to sit in my chair and think about it. I'm going to go take a walk or I'm going to go for a run and just, you know, think, I think on it on that run. And it always, some, it, it might not click the first time. And never get frustrated if it doesn't click. It, it's sometimes it will be a week or two weeks before that missing thing that you're looking for clicks, but it will eventually click if you give it time. And just getting out and doing things, um, not forcing it. When you try to sit down and force it, it's not going to come. But if you're just out organically doing things, just running, walking, interacting with people, it's going to click. And that's that's the uh, that's how it always has come to me. Obviously, everyone's different; they have their own things, but that's how it always worked for me. I'll tell you what doesn't awesome. work for me I, is, I is turning on the TV because I'm like, ooh, that gives me an idea. Then I write something like, I, I just plagiarized. What am I doing? <laughs> so, yeah. I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I this thing. I'm a I'm a fiend for uh, Twitter. I just uh, I love uh, I love sports Twitter and everything. So entertaining. So like whenever I'm at my desk, I'm like, don't look at Twitter. Don't look at Twitter. Don't look at Twitter. And like I'm looking at Twitter. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's the chance to trade to someone. Oh, no, so. <laughs> Uh, can't do oh, that. So are you a Jets fan? <laughs> no, I, I, there's an oh. excuse. I'm actually a Giants fan. Um, oh, so, nice. Okay. 
So it's oh, another I'm, tortured fan base, you know. So, <laughs> brother, I'm a Commanders fan, so I, I know I feel your pain. <laughs> oh, NFC is proud. All right, yeah. All we do, all we do is lose to the Eagles and the uh, Cowboys all the time. Yeah. Uh, uh, although not the not the Commanders. Commanders got the. They always seem to have the Eagles uh, numbers. Sometimes they were. You guys always give the Eagles a run for their money. Not this season, but oh well. It's behind us. <laughs> you put, no, put in a token. Uh, listen, Sam Sam Howell's got a strong arm, but yeah, it's is. so great you guys have the um, the second overall second overall pick. I mean, so uh, you know, future's looking bright because you're going to get either Drake May or Cal Williams. So you know, that's it's going to be awesome. I'd rather, I'd, I don't want to veer too far off subject, but I want I'd rather trade down. We need offensive linemen. We need linebackers. So let's trade down, get more picks. Let's build around Sam Howell. That's my opinion, but. I love Sam Howell. I think he's such a coachable quarterback. He's got such a cannon of an arm. He looks like Brett Favre because he like throws a hundred touchdowns and a hundred picks. You know, like <laughs> yeah. he'll do both. There you, you go. Know? Yeah. Um, so I love that about him. So I feel like he could be coached. But today's NFL, like if you want to, if you think you can get a generational quarterback, yeah. if you feel like you can get an Andrew Luck or something, you know, um, uh, you know, name your, you gotta you gotta go for it. Um, I kind of feel like, but if you don't, uh, you know. Uh, you're right. I mean, I, the Giants, I'm the same thing. Like, I'm just like, stick with Daniel Jones for now and build, get the offense alignment. Don't go crazy on the sixth pick. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I kind of fear they will. Uh, I know this is not a sports podcast, but I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah we got <laughs> we, we, speak my language. Yeah. <laughs> we all met on sports Twitter. So that's funny yeah. that you said that because we're all Florida State fans. And so like, oh, that's okay. how we all even met to begin with. And yeah. yeah, see, I'm a Niners yeah. fan, so I'm just enjoying life. Oh, right you're now, loving but... it, yeah. You guys, pick, you guys get a value quarterback right now. Someone you're paying about uh, fifty thousand dollars to, and he's taking you to yeah. the Super Bowl. So, see, this yeah. is the last year we're going to have all this deal. So we better do it now, or it's over. Got to win now. Got to win now. Hey, but listen, I mean, like, I always say, like, like once you give your quarterback your deal, your window's gone. But it's like, I mean, how, how you know, how is Mahomes there every year? Every single year, right? Yeah, right, dude. It's crazy, uh, but no, but yeah, no, Brock Purdy. I love Brock Purdy. He's, he's like you could tell he's not a fluke. He could tell he moves around like the pocket like Brady. Um, he's got a strong arm, and just it's just you could just tell he's just smart. He's, he delivers the ball really well. So all this talk about like oh he's in a system, no, he's he's no. good. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no doubt. Who are you picking to win the Super Bowl? Before we I'm let actually you go. going with the, I'm going with the Niners because I feel like Casey <sighs> they. I, it's going to catch up with them because they played wow, so, so poorly all throughout the year, such stale football, and they, you know, and they got in obviously. But in, when Mahomes hits the playoffs, he hits the playoffs, and he just goes and he wins and he wins and he wins. But I feel like that's going to catch up with them at some point because they're playing uh, they're playing above where they played in the regular season right now, and I feel like it's going to catch up with them at some point. I think it's going to happen against the Niners defense. Um, but you know, so. the Niners defense could get picked apart, like surprisingly a little bit during the playoffs too. Uh, so, and, yeah. you know, it, that's surprising. And, and KC's defense, listen, KC is in the Super Bowl for one reason, one reason only. And that is that play that Chris Jones made when he pushed through that line and just to knock, um, uh, uh Buffalo Bills quarterback, um, Josh Allen's Josh Allen, arm yeah. just enough. That he didn't make that deep pass, and where he had the guy wide open in the end zone on that on that drive, where he knocked it a little bit, that ball came up short. If he didn't make that yep. penetrating drive, that's a touchdown. Yep. And 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 Buffalo's moving on. I don't know what happens when Buffalo moves on, but um, so like Casey's defense is no joke either. 
So I'm really interested to see. I really hope uh, Purdy shows up to to knock the naysayers down that he can he can play. Um, you know, he'll play against a good defense and put up a, a good game. But uh, I'm going with the Niners. I, you know, Christian McCaffrey's just just a lights out player. Love that Phenomenal. guy. Phenomenal. I can't believe he's doing what he's doing. He's just such a workhorse. Um, but it's going to be good. I mean, you know, I don't have a team in the Super Bowl. I just want a good game. And I know as a Niners fan, you just want blowout. The Niners get the, get the win. <laughs> Listen, we had an embarrassment of riches in the 80s and 90s, but I have watched yeah. them the last 12 years lose two Super Bowls, one to the Chiefs, and I'm sick of seeing them lose the Super Bowl. I would like to see them win one now. I know. <laughs> so, and that, that heartbreaking game, I know the Giants gave you guys yeah. when we won our 2012 Super Bowl. We won in the NFC uh, Championship game because of that fumble in the rain, the punt fumble. Yep. In the rain, uh, I, I like. I was obviously over the moon happy though, but I was like, "Oh, that's so heartbreaking." They're, they're losing on a fumble punt like that, you know. Yeah, it almost hurts right. as bad as being undefeated and getting left out of the college football playoffs. But anyway, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. So I mean, like, I, I listen. College is in my game. You guys tell me, being uh, the fans you are of that, would they have made any dent in the playoffs? Do you think? This is my opinion. The defense was playing out of its mind. We would have had a month to prepare whoever was quarterbacking, and Alabama's quarterback played terrible. So I feel like they they had a chance. I mean, yeah. that defense like like I, I'm not you know this is a weird comparison, but when the Giants beat the Patriots, y'all I feel like y'all won because your defensive line was just playing yeah. out of its mind. It and, you know, Eli made some big plays, but our defensive line was playing out of its mind yeah. those last yeah. few games of the season. So they would have they would have given any team problems defensively. Offense, yeah. I don't know, but defense definitely would have showed up. I mean, but that's just like you know. Thankfully, they're expanding, right? This next year, it, the playoffs expand, so there's there's not going to be any of these these teams just on the edge, not making it. Yeah, yeah, but I know that doesn't help you this year. I know. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. <laughs> no. The, 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 the scary thing is though is like it's becoming like these two big conferences, and if you ain't in one of them conferences, pretty soon you're gonna get left behind. I feel like so. Yeah. Yeah, like if you're not in the Big Ten or the SEC, you're just uh, you're getting left behind every day. So hopefully FSU makes that change. But Stephen, I really appreciate you coming on the show. This was awesome. I had a blast, and we really appreciate your time, man. Uh, <laughs> oh, this is that cutie pie showing up. <laughs> Brian's daughter is so cute. Uh, we really appreciate your time, Stephen. <laughs> Thank you, guys. So it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on your sports podcast. I mean, your uh, your horror podcast. Uh, I love that uh, Jason mask you on the background behind you. Oh, thank you. Yes, man. I, yeah, yeah, I've got a. You got it behind glass got a or something. Is it like autographed or something? It or? is. It is. It's yeah. by Derek Mears, who was Jason in two thousand nine. Jason. So, um, yeah, awesome. I've got a. I've got a lot of a lot of collections. Yeah, you got some cool items back there. You basically yeah, a lot of Smithsonian. A lot of stuff here. <laughs> you got a Michael Keaton Batman? Uh, what cowl? Is that what you call it? Yeah, from Batman Returns. It's in there. Oh, super cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's a rich yeah. guy. No, I've just been collecting stuff. <laughs> if you ever, if you ever do an Indiegogo, you know who to hit up first. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's about making I, poor I, financial I, decisions. That's what I've done. If I had a mobile computer, I'd show you. My closet's got uh, nine different Hell House clowns, all like. Uh, oh yes, but, that's awesome. So I got a I got a creepy closet. And my kids, uh, they hate it though. That's but that's where I hid the um, Christmas presents because I knew they wouldn't go in there. So oh, <laughs> nice, very nice. Hey, don't hey, don't go in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again, Stephen. We appreciate it. Just want to remind everybody. Don't go out there.
Man.